Well, good morning. Uh, my name is CJ Cooper, the Student Ministries Director here at Life Community Church, and we're so glad to have you with us this morning as we worship. Uh, this morning, we're going to be reading from Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 30. And it says this, Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? And he said these things, as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like a leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has written, risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and, we, and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you came from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God as we gather and open God's word again. I come off a week being in Chicago with a bunch of pastors and evangelists, and, and someone asked me, Man, why are you going to go? learn more about how to share the gospel. Like, can you be any more evangelistic? I'm like, oh, you watch out. And it was great. We were in a smaller conference, about 200 of us pastors, and got to know each other uh, and, and rub shoulders with some of the speakers and, and hear just from Australia and all over in different places and, and seeing how God and the kingdom is growing and how, um, man, even in the darkest heart of, of Chicago, seeing a church reach their community, uh, even amongst just death and crime and, and everything, the, the hope of the gospel is, is alive. And so as we pick up the scriptures on a bright Sunday morning, we get to hear another Sabbath 
story from Jesus. And it's amazing because even then, as it is today, we haven't gone that far away from the same approach where you want to fit in and, and you, you have to look the part, talk the part. And so like the Pharisees, they had their, either they were born a Jew or they decided, hey, this is a cool thing. I'm really smart. I can memorize verses. I can talk the talk. And, and so today we have people coming to Christianity or the church, maybe they're born in it and they realize, hey, I can make a, a good living being a pastor or a professional musician and call myself a Christian. And so they come to Christianity picking, choosing parts they agree with, parts they can align with and, and leave out the other parts. And they're accepting Christianity as words or, or views that already align with words they can speak or views they have or that they could at least profit off of. The problem is in Corinthians, the church in Corinth had the same issue and Paul counseled them against that. And he said in chapter one or chapter four, verse 20, the kingdom of God is not just a lot of talk. It's living by God's power. It's not, the kingdom of God is not in words, but in power. The interesting thing Paul clarified in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. So there's not something we can just simply talk or look at Jesus as an example or a teacher, but he has to bring us, he has to give us this power in us. As we see that following Christ, this power of Christ's perfect life is taking the place of our imperfect and broken life. And that transfer has to take place. So for those of us who maybe call ourselves a follower of Christ or a Christian, here's two things that will encourage you, and all through we're going to keep coming back to this, is the power of God in us, is the power of the kingdom of God in us. Defining the kingdom of God, it's, it's now in us through the power of the gospel, and it's not yet realized in our whole world and universe because Jesus is ruling and reigning on the throne, but not everyone fully acknowledges that yet. So it's a not yet kingdom, but it's a now kingdom in the believers. So when you look inside, do you say something like, look at what is in there? Look, isn't that amazing? That's there. That's in me. That didn't used to be in me. That love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, those the things that didn't used to be in there, they're in me. That's amazing. Or look at, there used to be bitterness. There used to be anger. There used to be rivals and deceit. And now it's not there. Look at what, what God took out of me. God did that work. Another way to say it simply is, every saint has a past and every sinner has a future. Is, is God doing that work? Is that kingdom realized in your life where you have a past as a follower of Christ, or maybe you're a sinner and saying, there's no one that could change me, no one could love me, there's no power, I'm so stuck and I'm so unlovable, and the gospel says, no, you have a future. God's gonna transform you. And it's not just for the Jew, it's for the Gentile. It's not just for those born a Christian, it's not just for those who born into church, it's for those who've never heard the gospel as well. And too often people wanna just fit in or they don't want to fully submit to authority, so they'll do enough to look close enough, but not really trust and follow Jesus. Not really totally acknowledge him completely as their Lord and Savior. They'll just say, oh, he, he can be my Savior, but he can't be my Lord. To think of it, we think of it often as just 
Jesus is the one who forgives us, but I can really do it on my own. So just help me out of this jam, and then I'll follow you slash do it my own way. And when I need you, I'll, I'll kind of look to you or call out to you. What you're doing is you're looking to Christ as an example of here's the ideal, which is the worst possible thing. And so often people, they look at Christ, and they see him as an example, and they hear the gospel preached, and they go, I can't obey God fully. I know, neither can I. That's the gospel. Unless he gives you a new life, the old is gone, the new has come. Unless there's a new birth, you can't live for him. And that has to take place. And the question that plagues so much of us and should keep you up at night is, am I really saved? Am I really following Jesus? Or is that church attendance not really going to cut it? Is me doing the right thing not really going to cut it? What is it that's going to make sure I'm saved? And how do I know I'm saved? Because so often, if you're not asking the question, guaranteed Satan is going to cause those doubts. No, you're not really saved. You didn't really do good enough this week. You should have tried harder. You should have been nicer to your wife or better to your kids. But if Christ's power in life is in you, his kingdom power is in you, then the announcement of the kingdom will flow out of you. And that's why Jesus shows up and we see first off the kingdom of God is announced with a powerful miracle. Second, the gospel is the power for new life. And third, we see the gospel is the power for growth. And lastly, the question Jesus leaves us with is, is God's power in you or against you? So first off, the kingdom of God is announced with a powerful miracle. On their Sabbath day, they're gathering around. Everyone's going to listen to the ruler of the synagogue and, and expound some crazy story of how the Jews were enslaved in Egypt and, and God came and saved them and set them free and God's this powerful, awesome God. And Jesus is God in flesh at church that day. And here comes this woman and her problem was not just physical but spiritual. This is nothing less than satanic bondage. And verse 16 said, Satan has bound this woman for 18 years. There she was in the synagogue on the Sabbath where she's supposed to be resting. She can't rest. It's ironic, right? Oh, you can't come here on the day of rest. Come here on the day of work. She's like, my whole life's work and I'm in bondage and I'm wait, I'm, my back is bent over. What do you think she was looking for? She's looking for hope, healing, and rest. <laughs> Truly shalom, the rest and peace that only God can give. In verse 12 and 13, Jesus saw her, calls out to her, woman, you're free of your disability, and he lays his hands on her, and instantly she was restored. And right away, she begins to give glory to God, because she has the true shalom, the peace, the rest, the presence of God, because God is there. The kingdom of God sets people free from bondage of Satan. God's domain truly came into her life that day. And now she praises God because God's kingdom was now present for her, in her, and everyone missed it. And especially the ruler of the synagogue is like, what are you doing? Why would you do this? And God's like, because this is what you're supposed to be doing. You missed it. You're not getting it. Earlier, we read out of Luke, who was writing to Theophilus, a new believer, as he's writing for us and our faith to grow. Jesus said, if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. So I'm not making this up. This is Jesus' words saying the kingdom of God is here now for you and not yet in its full essence. There's no disability in the kingdom of God. Everything that's crooked, including backs bent from the devil's 
work will be straightened and Satan will be thrown off and all glory will be restored back to God. And next we see, for some of us who maybe don't have a demonic back-breaking reality right now, maybe your back is Brent and we need to pray for you. So often I read that and I'm like, all right, Lord, is it this Sunday there's going to be a woman who's demonic and just broken, her back's breaking, we're going to set her free, it's going to be great. And God hasn't given us that. Because most of the time, the next two things Jesus talks to us about, this is our life. But we want to just look at the first part and say, okay, who's the woman? Or when is my bondage going to be broken? And I'm going to have this transformation. It's going to be easy, quick, fast, explosion like dynamite. Instead, what really happens is, is what Jesus talks about here. We've got to break it down. He talks about the, the mustard seed and the yeast. They take time. It's living with this power. It's not like this dynamite instant explosion or chemical power. It's this organic thing that grows slowly and steadily over time. So the first thing is the gospel is the power for new life. 1 Peter 1, 23 says, Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. What does it mean to be born again? This is not kind, not a kind of Christianity, but this is the only Christianity where, where God's kingdom comes into you, not by word, but by power. You have this new birth. And it means you are moved from this lower level of just existing to this higher level of, of totally having a cognitive sense of reality with purpose and intentionality. And it's interesting when you think about these, these forms and levels of, of life compared to where you were, you're just existing let me take a minute and ex explain this. There's like the plant life, where there's existing, the animal life, and the human life. Like if we have those three levels, there's thinking, acting, and feeling in all three of those. You can see, especially like we have this trendy plant that ha like lives inside and has big old green leaves. Well, apparently you can like overwater it and it's super sensitive and, and apparently like has these sensitive emotions and it thinks about light because you see it. It like grows in the corner. I feel bad for it a little bit because it's in the corner and it's like bent over like, oh, I got to get to the light. And it's, it thinks about the light and it knows in the lower level of plant life, it's like, I need light. I can't live in the darkness. And it bends over and it, one of our plants got wilted and we learned on YouTube, you could just cut it and put it in water for like weeks and months. And it finally shot out roots. I'm like, wow, it thought about that. Somehow it realized, like, I got pruned and it hurt, but I can still grow. And it acted and it stayed alive. And it has feelings on the lowest level of just living. It's not really thriving. It's just surviving. And it, and it bends towards the light. And then the next level of animal life. I don't know. I'm not like a scientist. I don't know all this. But all I know is when the UPS or the mail car pulls up, my little tiny dog you could put in a purse, like, turns into this like guard dog and she wants to eat him. And then she gets up to him and is like, I'm just a little dog. I was kidding. I'll just lick you. And I'm like, what was that about? Like somehow the dog thought and then acted like I should be this guard dog and then felt really small and realized I can't hurt you. I'll just try and lick you and hopefully you don't hurt me. But when I pull up, the dog thinks and here's my truck and acts a totally different way. She's like, hey, you're finally home. I thought you'd never come home. It's like, I was gone for an hour. What do you, you know I come I, he's like, oh, can you feed me? Oh, man, I'm starving. You know, the dog acts. It thinks, it feels. But the highest level, the next level is thinking, having this sensation, this action, and these emotions. 
humans, as we compare the first lower levels to where we are, are we just existing? Are we just like, yeah, I should probably go eat. I should probably get in the sun, I guess. It's good for me. But the person who has eternal life, all of a sudden, the whole reality, the spiritual realms opened up and you see this divine reality is God's holiness and your warped, distorted, sinful life. You see it and it weighs, you're like, man, this is bad. I need God to heal me and the love of God. And knowing you're a sinner, he laid his life down for you. And all of this reality comes up for you to see, for you to think about, for you to experience, acknowledge the substitutionary atonement where Jesus being perfectly sinless takes your place and exchanges your sin-filled life with his sinless life. There's all sorts of ways that maybe before you felt like a slave and now you have been born again and now you have these feelings and you have this desire to change. You have a new appetite where before you were just stuck in the pattern of this world living like the world and you couldn't think about anything else. You couldn't desire anything else and all of a sudden you do now. What happened in you? It's not your will. It's not your intelligence. It's something outside of you came in you and made you new. So feeling. You feel the love of God in your heart. So first we see thinking, actions, and feelings all change. Because the gospel is the power of new life. We're new creations. The old is gone, the new has come. And the second is the gospel is the power of for growth. We see in verse 18, what is the kingdom of God like and what shall I compare it? Verse 19, it is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden and it grew and became a tree and the birds of the air made its nest in its branches. In verse 20, again, what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. The seed grows and the yeast grows. It's very interesting because the power of the yeast and the power of the seed are kind of deceptive almost. Jesus was super clear and direct. He showed up and was like, boom, the woman's back's broken. Now it's not. I healed her. And now she, her sins are forgiven. She gives glory to God and everyone yells at him. And he's like, dude, be quiet, please. You guys take your oxes out to get water on the Sabbath. She's made in God's image. You guys have this plant level you guys validated the animal life and quantified that as something you should care for on the Sabbath. What about the human level? The higher existence. You guys, you guys treated that worse than your plants and your animals. Are you kidding me? Let's reorient this. I care for her on the Sabbath. And now he's like, actually, let's, for most of us, let me help you understand the kingdom power. And, and look at this tiny little mustard seed. I couldn't hold it up in my fingers, so we got a, a picture here. And he said, this mustard seed, Jesus shows us this tiniest seed, and there's no way a tree would grow out of that, some of you might be thinking. If a mustard seed would be thrown against concrete, who do you think would win, that tiny little seed or that, that concrete sidewalk? Especially if you stepped on it. The, creeds, the, the seed is destroyed. The seed would be crushed against the concrete every time. We also know that if you stick that little seed underneath the sidewalk, give it a few years, there's no contest, right? That little seed will grow up into this tree and it'll bust through the concrete. That's why all the, I always love like old sidewalks when, you, when I used to skateboard a lot as a kid because any of the old sidewalks, there'd be this natural ramp that would be created because a, a mustard seed would just burst through and make this little cool little hip in the, in the sidewalk, you know? 
So all the new concrete was nice and smooth, but there was never time for a mustard seed or a tree to bust through that concrete. And as dense and as crusty, as hard as that was, the seed is organic and it brings out life. The slab is inorganic. And it might be above the seed, but the seed eventually, given time, will break through. And people might be feeling like, I'm a Christian. I'm following Christ, so all my bondages and my back breaking, all this demonic attacks, God's just going to set me free from that. I want my problems to just roll away. And Jesus is saying here, they'll crack and break free, but it might not happen right away. The, the power of the kingdom is this hidden power that's unexpected, gradual, but it is relentless growth that comes into you. You're a partaker in this divine nature when you're born again. And the yeast is the same thing. The yeast is another wonderful metaphor of what actually happens. The yeast comes in to the dough, and it doesn't replace the dough. It transforms the dough into its likeness and has this impact on the dough the same way the Spirit of God does. And our new life comes into our life, and it does not replace our personality. It doesn't make us robots, but it, it's, it's you, and it's your temperament, your personality and it's the attributes of God that are now in you. And he exchanges your sin-filled life in bondage to the flesh, and he exchanges it with his spirit to be directed and guided in the power of his spirit. When he comes inside and, and you rise anew, only then do you really become yourself, your true self that God has designed and planned from the beginning. And yeast is in the dough, and on it goes. What does this mean? It means the way you know you're a Christian. When you look inside of yourself, are those things there that weren't there before? And are those things that, that shouldn't have been there removed? Did God take those bad things out? And you go, wow, how did that happen? It's not necessarily that all of your problems have cracked and fallen off. It may take a while for that mustard seed to grow up and be strong and destroy the so sidewalk, but it will. How do you tell that you have this kingdom power the gospel power in your life. Are you growing? It's as simple as that. Are you growing? As we look at the three areas of sin, are you thinking, acting, and desiring things against God? Those are the, th the same three areas where we grow to be like Christ through sanctification. The things we think about, act on, and desire are those looking and being more like Christ. That's our process of sanctification. The only way that changes and transformed as if we have a new birth. So are we growing in our thinking? Are we growing in our acting? Because so often it's, we just look at that first part and we're like, well, I, I still have this concrete on me. I'm, I'm still weighed down by this. It hasn't broken free yet. Well, are you growing in your thinking? Are there, is there growth underneath the concrete? It might not be apparent on the outside yet. Don't be discouraged. Are you growing in your actions? And are you growing in your feelings? As we look at this thinking, remember what we talked about before, you, you have this new life, and the ideas become more than ideas about God. Are the ideas about God becoming reality? Is his holiness not just this concept that's spoken to you, but it's starting to be experienced by you? When these become realities and they excite you instead of burden you, and you're burning with passion for the Lord, and then you start to realize, man, I'm growing, and, and I... I'm starting to be defined by my thoughts, by my actions, and by what I desire to be more like Christ and not more like the world. And the world's starting to take notice and say, wait a minute, we used to do these things together, and now you're doing this thing for God. 
Wait a minute, you used to talk like me, and now you talk like, not like me. Wait a minute, we used to think, and we used to do these things, and all of a sudden you're not, and, and you're like, yeah, because I was in Bible study, because I was growing, and because I was serving, and I put God's needs or others' needs before myself, I wasn't living for myself anymore. And, and it started here years ago, and day by day, week by week, you start growing, and, and it's a different pattern. You know it's hard, because you talk to your friends about the things of God, and they're like, I don't get it, and they just keep staying stuck in the pattern of this world. These things you used to have that held on to you, that weighed you down, are, are lesser and lesser and lesser becoming appealing. You can't avoid them. You, you see them, but you can't imagine life with, without them. All of a sudden, they're no longer a part of your life. Jesus Christ is the greatest form of power. There is no greater power than one to put himself aside, to put his power aside laying his life down to serve us with the, the greatest need of all, to pay our price for our sin, to be crucified on the cross, buried in the grave for three days, and come out alive and say, hey guys, I'm here, let's go, go tell the world about me, I'm going to go to heaven and rule on the throne, you're going to go tell everyone about me, and all of you but one are going to die for my name. And they're like, sweet, let's get it done. There's no greater power than to have that power under control. They could go live their lives however they wanted. They could have gone back home, but they had the power of the kingdom of God in them that controlled their thoughts, their actions, and their desires, and so they went and lived like Christ. And the whole book tells us how bad of a job they did and how often they fought and how often they got it wrong. So we should take heart. Tomorrow you're gonna not do a good job. Tomorrow you're not gonna be perfect, but tomorrow you're gonna obey God and you're gonna take a next step and grow and look more like Christ. I was super encouraged. I read this story of, of David and Sophia Flood. They're missionaries that in the 1940s, they said, hey, we're going to go, and we're going to go into Africa. And they had this other young couple, and they went, and they went to this, this center. So there's a bunch of missionaries and Christians there, and they're like, we're going to go tell the world about Jesus starting in Africa. And, and they decided, you know, we're not doing that as good of a job here. Let's go to this village. And they went to the village, and the chief said, you can't stay at the village. So they went up about a half a mile hiked up above the village, and they made this little hut, and these, these two young couples lived there, and, and David and Sophia had a little boy, and they're like, we're going to share Jesus with the village, we're going to win the village for Christ, and the chief said, no, you're not, you can't talk to anyone in our village, but we'll allow this little boy once a week to bring you eggs, and you can buy chickens from him, so David was super discouraged, like, what are we doing, so they're praying, they're praying, and they kept getting malaria, and, and Sophia was like, oh, there's a little boy here, I'm going to share the gospel with him, so she shares the gospel with him, and Eventually leads him to the Lord. She ends up getting pregnant, giving birth to a baby girl. And because of malaria, she dies 17 days later. David's, this other young couple, they're discouraged with malaria. They go back down to the like headquarters. And so David's like, we're done. We're packing up. We can't share any gospel with anybody. So I'm taking my baby and hires this guy to carry the baby girl down to the headquarters. And, and he gives his baby girl to, to this other missionary couple and he's like, forget it. God took everything from me. I'm leaving everything here, including whatever's left of God. And he leaves, goes back to his home country, remarries, has four kids. And that missionary couple that he gave his daughter to, they ended up passing away a couple days later. So they gave her to another couple, and they came back to the United States, and he became a pastor. And she grew up, her name's Aggie, and, and got married, and her husband ends up becoming a dean of a college and one day, this uh, newspaper ends up on, her, on the dash of her car. Someone just throws it in there, and she opens it up, and she can't read it. 
and she can kind of make out stuff. So she realizes, hey, I want this translated. So she goes to someone who can read it and translates it. And this is what it said. It said it was about missionaries who'd come to the area in Africa long ago and the birth of a white baby girl, the death of a young mother, the one little African boy who'd been led to Christ, and how after the whites had all left, the boy had grown up and finally persuaded the chief to let him build a school in the village. And the article went on to say that gradually that one boy won all of the students to Christ, the children led their parents to Christ, and even the chief became a Christian. And today there are 600 Christian believers in that one village, all because of the sacrifice of David and Sphia Flood. And Aji sought to find her real dad. She's like, wait, that's my dad. Where's David? So she figured out where he was, and she went over and met up with her half-brothers and sister, and they're like, hey, you can go see dad. He just had a stroke. Don't bring up God. Never mention the name of God because God took everything from me, is what he'll say. And so she's like, whatever. So she goes in, and she says, Papa, and he turns over, and he begins to cry, and he, and he calls her by the name he gave her, Ina, and he said, I never meant to give you away. And, he, and she says, it's all right, Papa. Uh, God took care of me. And instantly his tears stopped and he, and he got angry and said, God forgot all of us. Our lives have been like this because of him. And he rolled and turned his face against the wall. And she said, Papa, I've got a story to tell you. And it's a true one. You didn't go to Africa in vain. And Mama didn't die in vain. The little boy you won to the Lord grew up in that village and won that whole village to Christ. The one seed you planted kept growing and growing and growing. And today there are 600 African people serving the Lord because you are faithful to answer the call of God on your life. Papa, Jesus loves you, she said. He's never hated you. The old man turned back and looked at his daughter's eyes and his body relaxed and he began to th talk. And the whole afternoon and, and for days later, he came back to God he had resented for so many decades. Over the next few days, they were able to spend time together before he passed away. And then some years later, she was able to go to an evangelist conference, and there was a guy speaking about the same area where her parents were missionaries. And he said, now the national church is, is recognizing 110,000 baptized believers. So from one to 600 to 110,000 believers. And he, he couldn't stop going on and on about how the gospel spread because of that one boy. And Aji went up to him and, and said, hey, do you know David and Sophia Flood? And he said, yeah. Um, it was Sophia Flood who led me to Christ. I was the boy who brought food to your parents before you were born. In fact, to this day, your mom's grave and her memory are honored by all of us. That one little boy. And so often we go to church and we're like, where's the, where's the concrete going to break up? And we're so focused on that that Jesus is like, what the kingdom is really like in your life is this slow growth, one person at a time. Are you focused on the gospel? And she went and saw the, the, the side of her mom's grave, and, and the pastor shared these verses when, when she was there. John 12, 24, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls on the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Then he followed with the Psalm 126, verse 5. Those who sow in tears will reap songs of joy. The sacrifice of those, we say missionaries, their life is on mission and they're called to go. Your life should also be on mission and you're called to go to your neighbor, 
your bosses, your employees, and how are you sharing the gospel? So often we go, oh, we can't go to the village. Our life's over. God failed us. My wife died. Like horrible, tragic things happened in our lives. And instead of turning to God and saying, well, James tells us to rejoice during every trial. This is a trial. I need to rejoice. What are you doing in this? This is hard. I got a divorce. I got fired. Everything's falling apart. What's God doing? He hasn't forgotten you. He still loves you. Jesus Christ was beaten for us, scourged for us. He became weak so we could be strong. So first off, we see the kingdom of God comes with this powerful miracle. Here's the power. There's nothing that can touch it or come against it. And it's in you now as new life. The old is gone. The new has come. Is there growth? Are we comforted by that? It might not be as fast. It might not be as, as you know, flashy growth that we want or we'd hope for, but is it growth? And our fourth point, we see lastly, it gets a little scary here with this question. The question is, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Is it only one? Is it only one? Is God's power in you or against you? Here's the reality. And so few, often when you're studying this, the pastors will just talk about the seed. And it's, it is. It's the primary. It's the majority of us, right? Few of us, if any, have been demon-possessed or attacked there. And few of us are probably asking the question, how many people are going to be saved? Let's talk about hell, pastor. I really wanted to come to church and talk about hell today. Not many. It's easy to avoid these. But here's the reality. The reason that the two missionary couples went to Africa because hell is a real reality for everyone, especially those who've never heard the gospel. The king who said, you're not talking about anything to anybody in my village, especially Jesus, will kind of keep you, you know, alive, maybe. The kingdom of God is not in words, but in power. And our evangelism should create this honest urgency because we care about people's souls, even more so than they're clothed and fed. But we care about them physically as well as spiritually. Too many people act as if hell is just this idea, right? You, oh, I'll come to Jesus because he forgives me, but hell's not really a reality for me or anyone else. I'm not going to believe in hell. This, they act as if hell's not real, and this isn't new. There was a Jewish rabbi who said, hell is for Gentiles. It's a Gentile problem. I'm going to go and live however I want, and I'm not going to synagogue anymore. He thought because he was born a Jew, he's good. He doesn't need to worry about hell. He can live however he wants because of his ethnicity. Similarly, in the Middle East, a Muslim man looked at a missionary and said, what are you talking about? You really think I can go to hell? And so he laid back and stroked his beard and thought about it for a minute. He said, I'm an Arab Muslim. Arab Muslims don't go to hell. This isn't a problem for Arab Muslims. And interestingly, this is the American view as well. I'm an American. I'm not going to hell. I wasn't born in Mexico or Canada. I was born in America. Didn't you know? Like, I, I haven't killed anyone. As long as I don't kill anyone, I'm good. And I've, I haven't killed anyone yet. And I'm an American. Like, I'm double good. But Hebrews reminds us in chapter 10, 31, it is a terrifying thing to fall in the hands of an angry God. And Jesus isn't mincing words, and he knows he's going to the cross to save people from hell. And so when someone says, hey, uh, how many are going to be saved, a few or a lot, he takes an opportunity because his gospel evangelism is urgent. He knows they need to hear the hope. He, need, 
He needs to communicate the reason why he came. Therefore, since we know the fear of the Lord, we try and persuade people, Paul tells the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 5.11. Since we know the fear of the Lord, since we know the power is in us, it used to be against us, now it's in us, and you can have the power of God in you too and not against you. We must be convinced of the terror of God's judgment so we can persuade people as well. Even if it's one, and we can trust God with the results. No one outside of Christ should ever ask that question. Hey, are only a few people going to be saved? Without trembling and horror that they may be counted in the numbers of the many, not the few. Jesus says in verse 24, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter it and will not be able. I don't know about you, but I'm really not good at finding things, especially a narrow, small, unique, like one, uh, there's no hope. Like I was at the, the conference and they said, you want prayer? And I, I ran forward and the guy speaking was like, I feel like God wants to give you wisdom. I'm like, he better. Can I get two? Can I get two doses of that? Every time I read the gospel, I'm like, if it wasn't for grace, then there's no hope for me. If it was faith, I don't have enough faith. If it was works, I don't even know where to start. And here it is. No one outside of, I mean, that guy asking that question should have been trembling. Like, where's the door? How do I get in? And Jesus is like, yeah, you better, good luck finding it. Most people looking aren't even going to get in. How are the people that aren't looking? There's no hope for them. Verse 25, he said, the master of the house, when he wakes up, shuts the door, you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, hey, Lord, open up. We got a little lost back there. We're here now. Open the door. He's going to say, I don't know you. Where'd you come from? Then you'll begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence. We went and taught in, in our streets. We did all these things. In verse 27, he'll say, I don't know you. Where you came from, depart from me, you workers of evil. He doesn't just say, I don't know you, bye. He says, you did evil things. You did evil things because you tried to look like a Christian. You said the right things and you did all the right things, but you never... You never truly were saved. You never had God's power in you. Interesting thing here, in verse 28, he shares, hey, this place where they'll go is weeping and gnashing of teeth, separated from God, hell. When you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are cast out, he's adding insult to injury. He's like, not only is the door shut to you, you're going to see all your heritage heroes, all the Jewish heroes of your faith that you thought you were good because you were a Jew. They're going to be there and you're not, and you're going to go away from them. That's the experience he's trying to paint for them is, hey, I came in and the gospel kingdom has power over evil and Satan and demonic. And here's how I want to grow you and work in you. Will you let my word get in? Will you let my spirit have control? And here's the result. You can't just talk the talk. You have to be reborn. Without the preaching of the cross, without preaching the cross to ourselves all day and every day, we will very, very quickly result into a faith plus works as the ground of our salvation. If you were to die tonight and you were going to go to heaven, what makes you certain you'll gain entry? What would you say if you were asked? which I don't think you're going to be asked theologically, but it's always a fun exercise because it, it, it reveals what we're holding on to as the hope to gain entry into heaven, right? If you answer that in the first person, you've 
and I, we, we go wrong right away because I believe, because I went to Iwanas, because I memorized these verses, because I sang in the choir, because I helped in kids' ministry, because I tore down and put chairs away after church, because I. It's not. It's, it's third person. Lo- the only way, loved ones, friends, it has to be third person, because he, because of what Jesus did, Because when Jesus showed up, she got healed. When Jesus spoke, when Jesus touched me, when Jesus said, be free, I was free because of him, not because of me. Think about the thief on the cross paints the perfect picture. I can't wait to find him one day and and ask him how that transaction went for him. You were cursing the guy out your whole life. You lived as far away and you ran as fast as you could away from God. And then God and his mercy and his plan puts you on the cross right next to Jesus. Like how beautiful of a picture do you have to get? That missionary dude who abandoned God, left his daughter, and God's like, I still love you, watch this. I'm gonna bring your daughter to this college so she sees a newspaper, so she goes here and sees you on your deathbed and reminds you, I still love you and I saved you. And you're a pitiful excuse for a follower, but I still love you and I saved you, come into heaven. Like that blows my mind. It's like, wait, that was the last guy and somehow he got in and the people that think they're first, they're not gonna get in. And here, the guy on the cross, imagine, he's never been to Bible study. He never got baptized. He doesn't know a thing about church membership. And yet, he made it. How'd you make it? What happened? And maybe, you know, maybe there's an angel that says, sees him there and is like, what are you doing here? What was his response? I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? The angel's like, I, what do you mean you don't know? And he's like, I don't know. So he goes and gets a supervisor maybe and, and comes and asks him, so let me ask you a few questions. Like, how did you get here? Let's clarify this. Do you know or understand the doctrine of justification by faith? He'd say, I never heard that in my life. Okay, well, let's just jump to the doctrine of Scripture. Do you understand the inerrancy of Scripture? He would just shake his head in frustration and maybe the supervisor would just jump to the simple, basic question. On what basis are you here? And he would say, the man on the middle cross said I could come. That's his response. While the other guy's cursing Jesus out, he's like, dude, he's the one who never sinned. We actually deserve this. And Jesus says, hey, today you'll be with me in paradise. All he did was say, you're good, I'm not. And Jesus said, you're saved. The unique thing about the gospel is so many times we give you helpful prayers or helpful things, but it's this, secret, slow growth that will happen immediately when God gets a hold of your heart. And so many times you believe sitting in the pew or sitting in the chair and God saves you. And that's it, is he said, I can go. The man on the middle cross said, I can come. It's the third person always. And so quickly, we just wanna make it about us. Or we say, oh, I didn't do good enough. God's like, I know. That's why the guy on the middle cross said you can come. That's why my son died for you. That's the only answer. Every time we stop preaching the gospel to ourselves, we end up like the missionary, thinking it's about our works and how we failed and really we put it on God. Last week we talked about, you either blame God above the tower or you blame the sinner under the tower. And he's like, forget it. I feel like a tower fell on me, so I'm gonna blame God, I'm out. When we stop preaching the gospel to ourselves, we'll end up like him. But when we preach the gospel to ourselves, we'll realize, man, it's because of his work on the cross that I'm free. And I won't give lip service. It's not about words. It's 
power, the gospel's power in me. And so at the same time as we're living as if my salvation depends on me, we have to preach the gospel to ourselves and realize salvation depends on the Lord, not you. As soon as you go there, it'll lead you to this humble reception of his work in you. Instead of this despair or arrogance thinking that no one's going to save you or you're never going to do good enough or this arrogance that you think you're good enough and doing good. It's only the cross of Christ that deals with both the dreadful depths of despair and the pretentious arrogance that pride has as it grows in us. And you know, you think, I can figure this out. Thanks for forgiving me. I'm going to take these pieces and parts of Christianity and it'll work for me. No, it's all or nothing. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. That's the simple gospel. Because the sinless Savior died, your sinful soul is counted free. And for God, the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon Jesus. That's why Luther, Martin Luther says, most of your Christian life is outside of you. In this sense that we know that we're not saved by our good works. We're not saved as a result of our professions, but we're saved as a result of what Christ did because he said, I can come, we're set free. And so as we end today, we have to hold on to that truth that God's gospel power is growing in us has brought new life to us. And yes, it has this miraculous aha purpose and power behind it that we're gonna go and do greater works than Jesus, but that's not what we're expected to do. We're supposed to be patient, waiting him to work in and through us because his wrath poured out on his son, not on us. So I'm gonna give you a minute to pray and, and thank God for saving you. And maybe some of you, you just trusted in Jesus for the first time as your savior. And you're wondering what's the next step? You get to pray now, and because you believed, as believers, we get to take communion and reminding ourselves of that gift that God gave us his life, perfect life, and the cup of God's wrath was poured on him, and I'll come up and close this in a minute.